You're listening to Opera Innovations, a podcast brought to you by ABA Technologies. This month, we're talking with Dr. Bill Ahern and answering some questions that we received from social media and an email blast. So please welcome Dr. Ahern. We are here with Dr. Bill Ahern, who recently, well, within the last six months, came down to Florida and recorded a new updated CE course for us on stereotypy and also anxiety behaviors with some of the more recent research that he's done to update a previous course that he did for us. But there's still a lot of questions regarding stereotypy and what it is. And there's always the big debate on, you know, should you get rid of stereotypical behaviors? And when should you get rid of stereotypical behaviors or try to decrease those behaviors and increase more socially significant behaviors? And so he's agreed to answer some of those questions for us today. So welcome. Hi, Shauna. It's nice to talk to you. And thank you for being here. And so we have some questions from social media and also from some emails and some that I threw in there or elaborated on as well. I guess we'll jump right in and ask, you know, what is stereotypy and what qualifies or what qualifies as stereotypy? Well, that's uh, a perfect starting point when we're talking about stereotypy to um, look at, you know, how it is that we define stereotypy, how we distinguish it from other similar sorts of behavior. Stereotypy has traditionally been referred to in um, the psychiatric literature as non-functional movements and vocalizations that are repetitive in nature. As a behavior analyst working primarily with individuals with autism, stereotypy restricted interests and repetitive behavior stereotypy being one of those, you know, repetitive um, behaviors that uh, we're interested in when we're working with individuals with autism, stereotypy as a defining characteristic is something that um, we're very familiar with when we're working with this population. One of the problems with the traditional psychiatric definition of stereotypy, the non-functional part of it, is um, that that's not particularly satisfying um, to a behavior analyst or anybody interested in behavior and learning as to how it is we should characterize a particular type of response. Stereotypy has long been thought in behavior analytic circles to be maintained by the sensory consequences engaging in stereotypic behavior um, produces. And we'll talk a little bit more about that uh, in a minute um, when, um, when we sort of gravitate towards that. But the types of behavior that we've generally been into this, uh, this category of stereotypy um, involve things that um, are repetitive motor movements. They can involve hand movements like hand flapping. They can be gross motor movements like um, rocking the body or weaving one's head uh, and shoulders. Um, stereotypic vocalizations are generally distinguished by them having um, uh, an auditory quality being produced by um, an individual and um, being non-communicative. That non-communicative non-communicative part um, has been um, debated debated a little bit um, here and there, but 
there seems to be very little evidence that the vast majority of the individuals that have been worked with uh, by behavior analysts um, have stereotypy that is sensitive to social consequences. Um, there's certainly a small percentage, but stereotypy um, then are these repetitive movements and or vocalizations that um, occur in um, individuals of all types. We see it in typically developing individuals, but we see it occurring at higher levels in individuals with intellectual and developmental dis disorders. Um, and we see it occurring most prominently in individuals with autism. And I know that you had mentioned that you know, maybe one of the potential reasons why individuals engage in stereotypical behaviors. And some people who might be listening to this <clears throat> that aren't behavior analysts might be like, oh, you're talking about like ticks or something along those lines. And, and I think, what do you think about the word tick versus how we, def how a behavior analyst might define a stereotypical behavior. Right. Well, you know, one of my favorite things to say to students is um, your opinions are meaningless. Facts are much more important. Um, and so my, uh, my personal experience with ticks uh, has um, really been wide ranging. I have a number of uh, members of my family that have experienced um, a tick disorder, either trans in, in a transient fashion or in uh, a more um, lifelong type of situation. I have a nephew that has uh, Tourette's syndrome. I've also encountered ticks in lots of individuals that have other um, neurodevelopmental impairment. And a tick, what distinguishes a tick um, in um, the medical and psychiatric literature from um, stereotypy is that ticks are usually referred to as um, as involuntary, so they are more reflex-like than um, than stereotypy, which is um, voluntary. It's it's operant behavior. In fact, there is a healthy debate we could have from the beginning of when behavior applied behavior analysts, in particular, started studying stereotypy as to whether or not we had a good idea as to whether stereotypic behavior was operant in nature or not operant in nature. Um, but the more evidence that we've um, gathered over time, it certainly seems to be the case that um, stereotypy is uh, operant behavior. And the kind of operant behavior it is is automatically reinforced behavior, whereas a tick is something that is much more um, reflexive, like as I mentioned. And there are generally, I think, four types of tick disorders that are now classified in the, um, in the revised version of the uh, DSM-4. Um, there are transient tick disorders, um, and the kinds of ticks that we see are similar in category. There are motor ticks, and there are um, auditory or phonic ticks um, that um, involve some, uh, some sound property to them. But a transient tick disorder generally is something that's observed to occur for at least four weeks, but less than a year. Whereas chronic disorder, uh, tick disorder is something where there is either a single tick or multiple motor and phonic ticks. Um, usually not um, both categories together for a chronic disorder. It's either motor or phonic, um, and it's present for um, more than a year. Tourette's syndrome is characterized by both motor and phonic tics being present for more than a 
years period of time, then there's a, a you know tick disorder not otherwise specified where the criteria really don't meet any of the other categories. So this is sort of the catch-all other category. But ticks in and of themselves um, are um, things that we oftentimes see developing in, in young children, uh, four, five, six or so years of age. And oftentimes these ticks don't last past childhood um, unless they're of the chronic or Tourette's type. And um, when they, they do persist beyond childhood, um, there are a lot of differing opinions as to, um, as to what should be done with ticks and should they be treated. And generally ticks, if they're um, interfering for the individual, uh, there, are, um, there are strategies that can be used. Uh, there are talk therapies. Um, that have been developed, but most, uh, I think from a behavioral pr perspective, we would categorize these or the, the terminology that we've used for it as habit reversal, but um, in the grand scheme of things, it is operant behavior um, that is uh, incompatible with the tick um, and um, is something that we hope to teach the individual to engage in in those situations in which um, they would like to control um, those ticks. So ticks and stereotypy um, are really different things. In fact, one of the important diagnostic moves was to remove the word stereotypy or stereotype from the definition of ticks to make it a little less confusing for the medical community when they um, encounter uh, these and to be able to distinguish between stereotypy that we see in individuals with development disorders, particularly autism, versus tics that we see in individuals with tic disorders. The tic disorder, um, the, the etiology um, is even less clear than the etiology of autism, although it is thought that uh, there's a very strong genetic component to tics, um, as there is uh, with, with autism, um, but uh, the mechanisms of abnormal neurodevelopment are probably very different. That's a great way to distinguish between the tics and the stereotypical behaviors. And I know that you mentioned that with the stereotypical behaviors that a lot of the times, you know, they are automatic. And sometimes, you know, I've run into when I'm supervising, some people might just be like, oh, it's, it's stereotypy, it's automatic. So is there, I mean, what kinds of assessments should people be running on these stereotypical behaviors, you know, to see if they are, you know, if they are straight automatically reinforced or if there is some social aspect to it as well? Well, it really depends on our purpose, um, what kind of an assessment and how long an assessment we um, would want to um, invest our, our time and resources. Um, as a clinician, when I encounter uh, stereotypy, whether um, stereotypy is something that we consider as a treatment target is usually, you know, something that we determine based on a number of factors. Are there other um, more severe categories of problem behavior that the individual presents with, like self-injurious behavior? Um, if so, then we generally are not going to spend much time um, assessing uh, or attempting to treat stereotypic behavior when we have self-injurious behavior or aggressive behavior or other 
um, more severe forms of problem behavior. But if um, stereotypy is interfering um, in socialization or uh, during times in which we're uh, attempting to teach functional skills, um, then we may uh, benefit from having a focused approach on how we can make appropriate behavior more probable and stereotypy less probable. But we'll get, we'll get there in a few minutes because you are asking about assessment. So as part of that process as to developing the intervention, um, the assessment strategy that I would typically recommend um, in, a, in a clinical environment is something that we refer to as an alone screen. You might um, provide the, the individual with the opportunity to engage in stereotypic behavior by setting up the environment such that there's nothing else to do. And um, in those situations, if we see a lot of stereotypic behavior, um, we might want to occasionally probe some of the other standard functional analysis, you know, conditions where we have a, um, a, a strong um, feeling that um, because of the literature, stereotypic behavior uh, serves an automatic reinforcing function, that is the sensory consequences produced by engaging in stereotypy are what maintain stereotypy. Um, we um, want, I think, to be comfortable with the fact that stereotypy is not maintained by attention because if then there's anything that we do um, in, in treatment that involves um, prompting a reinforcement, we might be making the problem worse. So we might want to probe as to whether or not stereotypy is sensitive to attention as a reinforcer. Um, and this is something that we can do during an alone screen. We generally run three or four uh, alone or no interaction sessions where we have an impoverished environment, not much going on, no access to materials unless the individual is interfering stereotypical behavior is with materials, um, and um, see whether or not uh, the behavior tends to persist in that condition with occasional probes of, um, of other conditions like the attention condition and, um, and the demand condition where um, stereotypy might be sensitive to escaping from or avoiding uh, aversive tasks. So um, generally that alone screen involves infrequent probes of the attention and the demand condition, two or three um, for every uh, three to five or so of the um, alone or no interaction sessions. So that's what I would recommend from a clinical perspective. From a research perspective, I have a little bit of a different um, purpose to the assessments that I choose. Um, when I first started working with individuals with stereotypy, we were concentrating on vocal stereotypy. And at that point in time, there was not as much um, compiled evidence uh, that stereotypical behavior was indeed automatically reinforced. Um, so we were conducting the standard WADA functional analysis where we were using the alone, the demand, and the attention condition, as well as the play control condition. Um, and um, in those early days, uh, the vast majority of the functional analyses we completed provided us with um, fairly decent evidence that behavior seemed to be um, maintained by automatic reinforcement and was not likely sensitive to social consequences. And if it was sensitive to social consequences, one of the more frequent outcomes 
we saw with our students that we were working with was that stereotypy was least likely to occur in the demand condition because there was something else to do and completing demands was associated with reinforcement in the school environment for these individuals. So we oftentimes um, saw much lower levels during the demand condition. Um, we occasionally would not have great separation between the loan condition and the play, con uh, play control condition. Um, and um, over time, we sort of moved away from that standard functional analysis to more of the alone screen because the preponderance of evidence was suggesting automatic reinforcement with there being not a great amount of evidence that behavior was sensitive to other reinforcers like attention. However, um, right about uh, 2015, 2016, um, the Kennedy Krieger um, research group uh, headed by Louis Gopian, started to publish some really interesting work on, um, on automatically reinforced self-injurious behavior. And they suggested that perhaps the standard functional analysis when um, self-injurious behavior is automatically reinforced, if there is differentiation between the alone or no interaction condition and the control condition, the play condition, that that is predictive that automatically reinforced self-injurious behavior would be responsive to environmental stimulation of other kind, meaning that we could see a redirection of the response repertoire if we provide access to activities that the individual is likely to engage in, or at least prompt and reinforce engaging in those alternative activities. So we've moved back to doing the standard functional analysis to determine whether or not stereotypy um, when we conduct a functional analysis, um, that differentiation that we see during the functional analysis, whether it is predictive of, um, of the treatment outcome. So, you know, long extended answer, uh, but generally from a clinical perspective, I think a, an alone screen um, would be something that uh, would be most appropriate. Well, and I like that you give both sides because there is a research side to it, but then there is there also there also is the clinical application side of it. And I think with you describing the alone screen with some of the other probes in there, it makes it much more approachable for a lot of those clinical behavior analysts in their everyday work. And it really pulls out the important parts because I mean, I you know, I've even read that if you want to go further into depending on what the stereotypical behavior is, you can do even, you know, like break the, break the, um, depending on what it is, break it down even further. But I think that that's a really good assessment tool for clinical behavior analysts to look into. And I mean, you even mentioned in there when you were talking about it, one of the other questions that was asked and a question that I see very frequently on social media is, do all stereotypical behaviors need to be decreased? And I know that you, I know that I have my opinions on this. <laughs> um, and I've seen other people's opinions on this as well. And I know that this is one of the areas that behavior analysis still kind of, you know, clinical behavior analysis still kind of gets dinged on sometimes is that there's this overgeneralization that all behavior analysts want to always get rid of all stereotypical behaviors. 
Um, so what are you, what is your opinion on well, stereotypical um, behaviors? My thoughts on uh, stereotypy uh, really come from what it is we know about stereotypy. If an individual engages in stereotypic behavior uh, and it is like the vast majority of other people who engage in stereotypic behavior, um, it's likely maintained by some form of automatic positive reinforcement. So if stereotypy is something that somebody prefers to engage in, um, it's not hurting themselves, it's not hurting anybody else, there should be some time in the day in which it's okay to do that. So should we be looking to eliminate stereotypy? My, uh, my clinical opinion um, is elimination is not really a goal of stereotypy. Stereotypy is something that occurs with typically developing individuals. Uh, it um, certainly may um, interfere in certain social situations. It might make uh, it less likely that someone will be accepted uh, in um, the social world if they're engaging in high levels of stereotypic behavior. But I would, um, as I would assume most advocates for um, persons uh, with autism um, be hoping that the world would be more accepting of, of differences. Um, but that said, uh, there are times in which uh, automatically reinforced behavior is um, probably not acceptable from a social perspective. So it would be great to be able to teach individuals the skills they need to be independent in the community. Um, and when there are those times in which uh, someone needs to be engaging in pro-social behavior, um, then it's good that uh, we have a focus on teaching them the skills that they need to be independent in the world. Uh, if that means that we're also teaching them to not engage in stereotypy at those particular points in time, uh, well, then maybe that's part of the you know nuance of how we are crafting our in, our treatments to the uh, individuals and the situations in which those individuals find themselves. But you know, I, I want to you know harken back to the fact that if it's something that somebody likes to do, they're not going to be in social situations where it's stigmatizing all the time. There should be some time in the day in which. Yes, if they like to do that, it's not hurting them or anybody else. They should be able to engage in that behavior, just like you know we would expect any member of society who's doing something that is legal and enjoyable, um, something that we would encourage them to um, spend their time doing. Exactly, and I fully agree with you. Um, and I know that um, there are some We'll get to, I, I know I want to talk some more about like interventions and stuff that you've worked on and seen, um, but also there's some questions about, you know, what causes stereotypy? You know, when do these usually show up? Well, it just so happens that we've been working on a, on a project where we are doing developmental screens of um, infants who have a sibling with an autism diagnosis. Uh, and one of the things that we're looking for um, are, do we see um, some early markers of autism uh, in, um, in infancy, early uh, development? And if so, um, can we provide 
some very early intervention uh, to help um, the, um, the individual um, uh, learn in the environments that they need to be learning in and to be attending to the aspects of the social world that are going to be very important for them uh, to, uh, to attend to as they, as they age and they're developing other behavior. So obviously one of the things that we're looking for um, in these young children uh, is stereotypy. Um, stereotypy um, can uh, um, start to develop in, um, in early infancy. We're talking a, f a few months uh, of age. And um, there is not a ton of work with this population, but I think there will be some better answers to this because many groups are now sort of gravitating towards um, working with this uh, you know, so-called high-risk population siblings um, that have a diagnosis of autism. Children that are born into that family um, are at at least a tenfold increase likelihood of themselves uh, having uh, an autism um, diagnosis. So if we um, study this population, I think we're going to um, be able to develop some better answers to when does this start to develop. But we've done work with typically developing children at one um, year of age, at two years of age, at three years of age, at four years of age, and we see stereotypy occurring with typically developing children at these ages. So it's at least by age one, probably much earlier, you know, two, three, four months that these responses um, start to develop. Um, there have been a couple of studies that also suggest the presence of early stereotypic behavior may be indicative that self-injurious behavior may develop in the individual. That is very tentative um, data, but it's also uh, concerning. If we see stereotypy, is it more likely that we're going to see self-injurious behavior? That's probably a pretty good bet, given that stereotypy is one of the hallmark characteristics of autism as a disorder, and many individuals with autism uh, go on to develop self-injurious behavior. Well, and I like that you mentioned the studies with the siblings, because I know that I've, I've this was years ago, but, and this family had the means to, but they had one child with autism and they had a younger child on top of that. And they decided to, like, there wasn't a diagnosis or anything yet, but they decided to enroll their other child, their second child in the, in the behavior analytic services as well, before they even had anything. They're like, nope, we're just, in, we're going to enroll our second child as well. Um, and like I said, not all families are able to do that. Um, but I think it's really cool to see that, you know, there is this research going on and there are a lot more people going into these different types of research fields to look at this. And I know that not all of these will probably be in, you know, Java or behavior analysis and practice or any of those. What are some of the other journals that if people are interested in looking into that they could find some of the stuff. In. Well, um, I, th I think a good place uh, to start is a Google scholar search. Uh, if you're, you're interested uh, in um, this uh, high risk population siblings of individuals with an autism diagnosis, there are a number of uh, researchers that are looking into um, these uh, 
you know, these populations very um, explicitly. One of the places that I suggest somebody with more of a behavior analytic bent um, might want to go to directly if we're talking about a specific journal outlet, the um, JADD, the Journal of Autism and Developmental Disorders, is um, a pretty good uh, clearinghouse, I would say. It is most likely the flagship journal for autism research, if we're um, to categorize it as such. The, um, the work that uh, we're currently doing is something that uh, we've also disseminated um, at, uh, at ABBA, uh, at EPBA, and a number of um, regional and state conferences. So we're interested in sharing this information, but ultimately the goal of, um, or, or at least our goal, I know that some of the psychiatric and psychological researchers will most likely be um, of uh, you know, different perspectives when it comes to what their goal is. They may be more interested in looking at these signs of autism in early, um, in early development, but also are focused on what then happens as that individual continues to show those symptoms of autism where from a clinical behavior analytic perspective, we're interested in you know, getting the person to be as independent um, in the community, and oftentimes that will involve, you know, us um, intervening in ways that will make it less likely that those signs of autism will remain present. So um, our goal um, in this early infants um, research is to develop, to develop assessments whereby we can identify autism um, before or by six months of age so that we can go in and, and provide an intensive inter intervention to prepare um, the child for uh, preschool and, and um, uh, elementary school to the point where um, they are going to be independent and not needing any supports or services um, later on. So our, our goal is to, you know, get early intervention in there um, for those that need it and it uh, is also the case that we're going to be working to try to advocate for those autism diagnoses occurring at, um, at early ages or perhaps a provisional diagnosis, um, especially for those individuals that are at our, a high risk of developing autism. Can we do something um, to keep uh, the social development on track um, for them so that they can have as independent of a life in the community at large as possible. That's wonderful. So one thing that I'd like to always make sure to reiterate is that with all of this research going on and not everybody has access to all of these journals or a database where they can get access to these journals, one thing that people might be a little bit, I don't want to say scared, but kind of scared to do is to reach out to authors. Um, and I know if you reach out to the authors, typically they'll be very happy to share their research with you, um, especially in our field. I know that I've had a wonderful time reaching out to you and to a ton of the other you know, big names in the field to ask them about podcasts, research, other interesting topics to me, this and that, and even stuff that I haven't had been able to get access to, you know. I reached out and they're like, yeah, here, here you go. 
Um, so that's always something to do as well, that if there is research that's going on that you want access to, to make sure that you are reaching out to those authors um, and asking because the yep, I'm always happy to, to share uh, what uh, we're doing um, in our research group and most of what uh, I have uh, developed with um, my students in terms of um, treatment where uh, in the context in which stereotypy is problematic uh, are pretty readily available um, in a number of places besides journal outlets, um, the redirection strategies uh, that we've developed have um, sort of propagated themselves in many different locations on the internet. There's um, a particular um, clearinghouse of information on best practices. I believe it's referred to as the National Professional Development Center on Autism. Um, something or other like that uh, has developed modules on best practices in autism treatment. Um, response interruption redirection is, is one of those. Um, although when we start to talk a little bit more about intervention, redirection isn't necessarily where I would recommend anybody to start. Having a good uh, learning environment where um, there are um, uh, the appropriate supports um, and consequences for appropriate behavior um, that will help support there being more desirable behavior in the environments in which we're looking for, you know, pro-social behavior or, or academic um, uh, learning of one sort or another. Um, that um, is generally our, our, our first approach. And I've really um, had a, a nice experience with this particular line of work because many other research groups have contributed quite a lot to our understanding of this and the more diversity in terms of different researchers and research groups and locations throughout the country and different settings in which um, intervention is being provided, the more confidence we have that those strategies are, are giving us, you know, what in fact are the best practices. And I mean, you said what you segued right into the last question I had for you. The question I said we'd come back to are the common interventions for, you know, stereotypic behaviors. And I know this connects directly to the CE that you have come and recorded for us. Um, but what are some of the common interventions that, you know, people should be, you know, making sure that they're up to date on and, you know, becoming more familiar with? Well, since you mentioned CEs, I'll give my first sort of uh, uh, take on this to behavior analysts out there. And if uh, you find that stereotypic behavior is, uh, is interfering with an individual that you're working with, my suggestion is that you don't suck as a behavior analyst. By that, what I mean is that you have an idea of the repertoire of the individual that you're working with, what the skills are that they have, what their skill deficits are um, relative to other children their age, um, other um, adults their age, should they be adults, and that you are working towards teaching them the skills they need to be independent in the community by providing appropriate um, uh, prompting um, and reinforcement for those appropriate behaviors. That is the first line of intervention. So when I say don't suck as a behavior analyst, what we really, as a behavior analyst, um, when we're 
tackling socially meaningful problems have to bring to the table is an analysis of what are the motivating variables for the problems that we see, what are the motivating variables that should be there for the appropriate behavior that we're attempting um, to, to teach the individual. And because we have you know, both of those pieces, it's really important that we spend a lot of time on providing um, for a good learning environment so that we're supporting those appropriate that we would like to see in those um, situations in which stereotypy is problematic. We want to have a good focused approach to teaching those skills that are necessary. And there are a variety of them. Um, in, the, um, in the event that I recorded um, for you folks, um, I spent a lot of time talking about the different contexts in which um, we are studying whether stereotypy is problematic and what the skills are we're attempting to produce. We, um, right now, have been focusing on communication skills and, um, and other responses that are appropriate when the individual is alone or when they're with other people. So um, when we're focusing on when somebody is you know, left to their own devices, well, stereotypy might be okay in that situation, we also want to make sure that we're providing individuals the opportunity to engage in um, age appropriate and by age appropriate, I mean at least starting with developmental age appropriate and attempting to move towards age age appropriate uh, leisure skills so that we're teaching um, the individual to do those sorts of things that people normally do when they're on their own um, and, um, and spending a little less time worrying about whether or not stereotypy is occurring in those situations. In social situations, we're really attempting to teach the, um, the skills um, that are necessary when we're interacting with, with other people. So there are oftentimes lots of prompts um, and, um, and reinforcers that we're embedding within those situations to provide not only the, the, um, the skills that are necessary when interacting with others, but also help to um, provide the appropriate motivation until we get to the point in time where the automatic reinforcers that are maintaining um, social behavior are there because the individual's behavior is contacted, how reinforcing it can be to interact with others. So um, when, um, we look at that initial approach. It's making sure that we have a good, solid, um, applied behavior analytic um, objective for those skills that we're going to teach, that we have good teaching methods um, to, um, to produce the skills that we're um, attempting to produce, along with good reinforcers uh, to maintain those appropriate responses. Whereas when that's not enough, Redirection is um, is a strategy that we found to be very effective. So that second piece, the response interruption and redirection, that I've spent an awful lot of time uh, uh, with my um, colleagues developing um, ways of um, making it less likely that stereotypy is going to occur in those situations in which it's problematic. Um, we um, have a number of different kinds of redirection techniques that we have found to be effective. Um, they're detailed um, in the 
two events that I've recorded uh, for you folks there. Um, but in a nutshell, redirection is something that um, we aim to have it be um, contextual and as unintrusive as possible. The original study um, that we published in uh, Java in 2007 showed that when we um, asked uh, individuals to engage in vocal responses that were um, in their repertoire and that they engaged in and uh, independently and frequently in other situations. So we would ask them social questions, um, redirecting their stereotypic behavior. We had a great deal of success um, in, in decreasing um, stereotypy in those situations in which um, stereotypy was interfering. Over time, we have gravitated towards um, a more specific analysis of the different contexts in which we encounter stereotypy and determine those in which we can let stereotypy happen because it's not interfering or problematic um, and those um, in which it is interfering and problematic and tailor our interventions to those situations in which stereotypy is problematic and attempt to redirect the individual back to the task that we're um, working on at the uh, point in time in which uh, we're encountering stereotypy that's interfering. Um, and this is a good place for me to, like you had mentioned, plug your CE events that you did come down and do for us. And there's only so much that you know we can talk about on a podcast in such a short period of time, but you have done a couple CE events for us on this topic specifically. One was stereotypy. There are no easy answers. Um, and then just recently you did an, an updated one called repetitive behavior, autism, stereotypy, and anxiety. Supporting adaptive behavior is the answer. And I just want to plug those because you do a very good job of going even further in depth about the research, the history behind it, what it is, how to address it, and a lot of these supports you've been talking about throughout our talk today. Um, and you even, I, one thing I like about the newer version as well is the videos that you gave. You actually give videos and show what it looks like as well. Um, so are there any other types of interventions or assessments or questions that you've heard from people that you've like that you would like to answer while I have you here? Well, let me start with the, the comprehensive um, approach uh, that we have. Um, my, uh, my research group uh, that um, has been focused on stereotypy, we um, as a research group have a number of tools that we use before we bring an individual into an experiment um, that uh, oftentimes are very informative and helpful for us. One of the things um, that um, we have uh, in our bag of tricks is we attempt to identify what um, activities in an individual likes to engage in. What are the um, play or leisure, um, you know, activities that an individual will spend their time doing and um, provide them uninterrupted, independent access um, to these activities so that we can see 
they engaging in them um, in a functional manner? Uh, do they engage in stereotypic behavior during these times? Um, do we see any other problem behavior um, surrounding these particular activities? So we do something that is very similar to what is in the published um, literature referred to as a competing stimulus assessment. So we identify a number of different kinds of activities, each referred to as a stimulus, and we provide um, at least three minutes of access to the activity um, across three different samplings of that. And we usually expose an individual to somewhere between 10 and 20 activities to, to gauge what their skill levels are. If we see a lot of item contact but stereotypic manipulation of uh, objects, oftentimes the focus of our intervention strategy is what happens if we teach um, these, uh, these individuals that we're working with how to engage functionally with these particular items. So we, we prompt functional engagement um, and then provide them access to the, to the activities independently. Um, if we're not seeing a lot of um, functional engagement, um, at that point in time, we might throw on um, reinforcement um, of some sort, uh, starting with, you know, maybe hitting five or 10 seconds worth of functional engagement, providing a reinforcer, and then extending out our criterion or leaning the reinforcement so that we get more and more functional engagement in those um, particular activities. Um, so a competing stimulus activity is something that is always part of our process of working with an individual where stereotypy is problematic. We also do a number of um, other types of um, preference assessments. Uh, we usually do edible preference assessments for those individuals for whom edibles are reinforcers. Um, we oftentimes will work, particularly if we're going to try to build social interaction skills, We'll do social stimulus um, preference assessments so that we can identify social stimuli that serve a reinforcing function and use those in teaching the social skills that we're working with because those are the kinds of reinforcers that are going to be there naturally for social behavior. So we go in there and do those kinds of assessments. And um, we look specifically for the components of the skills that we're attempting to teach. For instance, if we're teaching social interaction um, we uh, are going to, you know, try to make sure that we have uh, eye contact, conversation skills, volleys of going back and forth in those turn-taking um, situations, such that we're producing the vocal and motor responses that are that occur during those interactions um, in a way that is meeting that individual's skill level. Um, we sometimes also um, test out um, different redirection strategies to see if one is better than another. So um, there have been a number of studies that have shown motor redirection uh, can be very effective for both vocal and motor stereotypy. Um, and vocal redirection also can be effective for both vocal and motor stereotypy, um, but there are individual differences. We may find that we have better treatment effects with motor redirection than we do with vocal redirection or vice versa. And if so, we try to embed that into our um, our general treatment approaches when we're um, crafting the interventions that are going to work best for an individual. So there are, um, I think, a number of standard behavior analytic assessments that um, BCBAs out there 
we're going to have plenty of experience with that will also usefully inform them developing ways of, uh, of dealing with stereotypy. And finally, I really do like to spend some time just observing the individual and whatever their natural environment is to get a, a good sense for what um, are the variety of stereotypic behaviors that we're going to see. And we always interview um, caregivers um, specifically uh, to determine are there those responses that are more or less concerning. And if we have those that are more concerning than others, then we're gonna concentrate on the more important um, response classes uh, rather than attempting to catch everything. Right, and I think that that's a key point um, to make because um, like I've mentioned before that um, this is still a critique that I'm seeing, you know, over the whole internet um, of people saying- I just like, want to comment on that yeah. um, critique because I, th I think that when that critique is made for stereotypic behavior, um, I understand uh, from um, an ethical perspective why um, if an individual chooses to do something, they should have the right to do that if it's not hurting them or anybody else. So I think that's a appropriate context within um, our discussion of, of stereotypy and what we should and shouldn't do. Um, but I think the same logic applies in just about every situation in which a behavior analyst is, is encountering behavior. Um, putting together a reinforcement contingency and, and teaching um, pro-social skills is something that we should always have an eye towards. What, um, what are we doing? If we're attempting to, um, to teach a particular skill and we're using some contrived reinforcers, are we going to need to use those contrived reinforcers for the rest of this person's life? Just like, you know, a clear-cut situation. If we have an individual self-injurious behavior that's placing them in a life-threatening situation, of course we're going to do whatever we can to go in there and develop an effective intervention strategy. Should that intervention strategy involve um, some form of positive punishment? Well, I sure don't want to start there. Uh, if that's the only effective thing um, that we can do, then we need to make an ethical decision as to is the, the continued occurrence of self-injury more problematic for this individual than exposing their behavior to some kind of a punishment contingency. Um, that's an ethical decision um, that should be made not by any one clinician in isolation. It should be made by a team of individuals, should include um, the person if they are um, if they are capable of consenting to intervention uh, of, of that type. But in the long run, even if we choose to uh, initially um, use a positive punishment strategy, our goal should be to get rid of that as soon as we possibly can so that we no longer need to have that in place because it's never acceptable to have that kind of a strategy in place for an individual's lifetime. That's my opinion. Yep, and I fully agree as well. So that leaves us with, um, we should not suck as a behavior analyst. Right, we should not. <laughs> yes, we should not suck as a behavior analyst. Um, 
I know that, you know, I, I mean, I'd be lying if I said that I didn't find myself, you know, when I was practicing in the clinical realm that I didn't find myself getting dull sometimes I did. I could feel it sometimes. Um, cause you know, there's that work life balance and trying to make sure that you're not getting burnt out. Um, but use your teammates, use research, see what's out there, go to conferences, talk to other individuals in the field that are outside of your area, see what they're doing. Um, and yes, to, to quote Bill Ahern, don't suck as a behavior analyst. <laughs> That's my main takeaway from today. <laughs> um, so yeah, is there anything else that you want to cover? I know you went into that about a lot of it, and I'm very happy to have you and your expertise talk to me today about stereotypy because this is still a set of you know behaviors that eludes people so sure the lot uh, the only thing that really um, didn't get into um, that I did in fact get into in the um, in the second event that I recorded for you guys where we were talking about um, anxiety and automatically negatively reinforced behavior is there are some instances in which we encounter stereotypy like ear plugging and ear flapping where it seems like the individual is um, decreasing the you know noise um, that's present in the ambient environment that those kinds of responses and perhaps other responses may be indicative um, of automatic negative reinforcement meaning the individual is escaping from some type of aversive stimulation if that's the case, we really want to have a, a different approach for automatic negative reinforcement. We want to analyze what is aversive about the environment and can we teach um, the individual ways of, um, of removing the aversiveness of the environment or removing themselves from an aversive environment. I've worked with so many individuals with um, that ear plugging and ear flapping kind of a response where we either teach them um, to request to leave a noisy environment or to access um, noise canceling headphones or to um, access uh, some individuals actually really don't like those noise canceling headphones and they prefer um, just some alternative auditory stimulation like listening to music um, as, a, as a means of making um, the environment less aversive. So automatic negative reinforcement when it's suspected is something that we might want to have a very different treatment, treatment approach to. And um, if individuals are interested uh, in that, the second recording might be helpful for them because the kinds of approaches that we've used with individuals with autism who we suspected um, were anxious um, are applicable in those types of situations. Yeah. And that's really neat to, to kind of, you know, just think about, because I know that we talked about the functions and yes, it can be, you know, automatically reinforced, but what type are they escaping? Are they gaining something? Yeah. So that's something really interesting to think about. All right. Well, thank you so much for talking about stereotypy with us. And um, I always, like I said, I know I already plugged them, but if you want to learn more from, from Dr. Ahern, his CE events are absolutely phenomenal, um, and please go watch them. Um, but if you, 
I mean, are you willing, if anybody has questions to, I know that you kind of mentioned it before, but if anybody has questions for them to reach out to you as well. Sure, they should uh, email me at bahern at necc.org. And um, I am very happy to answer any questions. Sometimes you just need to um, wait a little while for me to get through all my emails because sometimes there are emergencies and sometimes there aren't. Right, but just knowing that, you know, that the our community has has access to you and your knowledge and your experiences is phenomenal. So I'll make sure to include your email in the podcast description. Um, but thank you so much for talking with us today. Well, thank you too, Shauna. Happy New Year and look forward to speaking to you again soon. Thank you for listening to Opera Innovations. If you are interested in learning more from Dr. Ahern, please see the links in the description and they will send you to his continuing education courses. And of course, if you have any questions, feedback, or suggestions, please feel free to reach out to us at operainnovations at abatechnologies.com.